Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. Hello, and welcome to the Nexus podcast. It's so nice to have you two back. I have Gene Casey of New Bean and Joe Amador of Amador Consulting back for the fourth edition of the J-Cubed M&A podcast series. Is that what we're calling it? Um, let's yeah. start with some intros for those of you that haven't caught up with our first three. And if you haven't caught up with our first three, there's no need to really go back because this is kind of about what's happening right now in the marketplace. So let's start with Eugene. Can you introduce yourself? Talk about what, what you do. Sure thing. Thank you so much for having me back, James. Uh, thrilled to be here. My name is Jean Casey, and I'm the global head of prop tech and innovation at Nuveen Real Estate. Um, for anyone not familiar with Nuveen, we are a very large asset manager. We're number four, number five largest real estate owner in the world across all um, sectors of real estate with about 150 billion, maybe 160 by now, um, AUM. I lead our venture capital investment program. So we're making direct investments into prop tech startups. Um, and I'm also head of innovation. So I serve as kind of the internal expert on all things uh, startups and venture capital. Awesome. Thank you. How about you, Joe? Yeah, thanks. Uh, thanks, James. Good to be here with you and Gene. Uh, Joe Amador, I work in the smart building space really product market strategy consulting. So I work with small startups, large startups that need help in that product strategy realm, competitive analysis, voice of customer market sizing. I do a lot of work with investors, usually diligence of specific deals, but sometimes other things. And I do a little bit of work with owners and operators when they're looking for solutions to solve the smart building related problems that they might be having. Totally. Let's start with We've done this, I think the last two episodes, um, in this series where we just talk about kind of the macro environment for startups in the smart buildings industry. Um, Gene, you're our go-to and analyst for this, for this topic. Do you want to take us off what's going on in the, the marketplace right now? Yeah. So at the risk of, you know, having a very similar conversation to the one we had three and now six months ago. Um, things have slowed down. Um, I don't think that's news to anyone. Um, but I think overall, we've seen the at least the beginning to kind of middle innings of a fairly healthy reset. Um, so if we're looking at the overall venture capital market, um, finding the market clearing price or, you know, the valuation of a company uh, that is raising a round of funding, whether it's a seed round, a series A round, a series B round, that process is taking a bit longer um, than it did, you know, 12 months ago, 18, 24 months ago, especially. So there's fewer term sheets, but rounds are still being raised. Um, there have also been, you know, I would think a broad set of expectations that have been reset, both on the founders and the company side, as well as venture capital investors. And that's really all around a, folk, a greater focus on business fundamentals, a path to profitability, 
and controlling startups' burn rates. So there is overall a greater expectation um, and an onus placed on companies to demonstrate that they can achieve the same level um, of commercial outcomes or achieve those KPIs or milestones that they've aligned on with their investors with uh, smaller amounts of funding. So really do more with less, I think is a tagline for the last three months. Um, again, not to repeat a lot of what we've talked about on the last couple of these episodes, but we have definitely seen valuations come down. That's been most pronounced in later stage venture capital. Um, but it is definitely true and has been felt and is being shown up now in kind of year end 2022 data across the board. Um, but again, more pronounced the later you're looking. Um, that is maybe true across the board, except in two key areas, uh, both of which have a lot of relevance to smart buildings and all of our smart buildings slash prop tech world. And that is climate tech. Um, valuations have not cooled off as much as, you know, kind of more point SaaS solutions, let's say. Uh, and the other one is anything to do with AI. And so that's that seems to be the new buzzword. Um, I think there's a ton of promise and excitement ahead in both of those categories for sure. But there's also a lot of writing um, of tailwinds for any company that kind of, you know, loosely uh, has a theme mm -hmm. in one of those two areas. Um, and then I'll, I'll end by saying, I think, you know, one indication that we've really turned a corner is that capital that was previously available to what I'll call like middle of the road startups, ones that are not absolutely killing it and converting pipeline customers to paying customers with real revenue, like growing that revenue really quickly. If you're not doing that, it's really hard to go back to your existing investors for yeah what previously was fairly easily accessible bridge rounds or interim rounds, or we saw a lot the rise of like the seed prime or the seed extension or the A extension round, that is much less common, um, at least what I'm seeing on the ground right now. So I'll say overall, um, slowdown is, is not surprising to anyone, but this feels like a fairly healthy reset that we're still in, you know, ending two, three, maybe four. Um, so fairly early on still. Got it. Super insightful. Joe, Joe, what are your thoughts? Oh, I, well, you know, it's funny when we were prepping for, for this discussion, we, we just, for everyone who's listening, we just have some notes. We just throw ideas in there. We kind of caress that into a, an outline, but you know, Fred Wilson has, has a, a blog post. We don't have to talk through it here, but he noted one climate is the one area they're investing that's kind of been spared. I think is the term he used from some of the carnage. I don't know if he used carnage. He definitely used spared. Um, so that aligns Gene with what you're saying. Um, but I also think the point on AI is interesting just because on one hand, yes, it's a hot area, but there's a lot of data analysis techniques in smart buildings that I think over time have become. I, I remember when I was a product manager, we had just a, a statistical analysis tool to do measurement verification, right? So validating the savings of an energy project. And that kind of became, oh, let's call this machine learning. And then that became, oh, let's call this AI. So it's kind of a slippery slope as well of with the that market being somewhat spared, more companies will say, oh, well, this is actually AI when it's like, well, you know, it's like definitely like a data-driven analysis approach. 
So it'd be interesting to see how all that plays out. I agree with you though, Gene. I just, uh, I think it, yeah, it's a recipe for, for overhyping what we were already doing in, in the industry. I think it's funny because yeah. the, the first thing when the, when the rage started coming out about chat GPT, the first thing I thought of was data modeling in the smart buildings industry. So you take data out of the building and we're trying to figure out how to tag it with the right metadata tags. And there are, you know, very smart right. engineers out there that are doing that all the time. That right. type of generative AI is perfect for that. But yeah. I think a lot of the companies that are out there building products around that use case, they're, they are, were already doing it before chat GPT came, like they were already doing it. So it's not like that yeah. Yeah, yeah, piece yeah. of that product to the market really, really changed things a whole lot. Anyway, that's a rabbit hole. We don't have to go fully down today. Yeah. Um, I, one of the there, things I wanted I, to go back to real quick, um, and this kind of relates to the Twitter thread that you brought up, Joe, in our, uh, sort of prep discussion, Gene, you said something along the lines of it's like sort of getting back more into business fundamentals. I think you said, can we just like really talk about what that means? Like, what are the actual things that investors are looking for to come into the next round, right? In a startup, it's customers and it's traction and it's, uh, repeatedly being able to prove that you can find new customers, right? Is that, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Directionally? Absolutely. I think where the nuance comes in is it totally depends on what round of funding and what stage of maturity company you're talking about. Right. So for, you know, a pre-product company or a pre-revenue company or a company that just has like a beta or a very preliminary pilot, you know, those kind of key performance indicators or KPIs look very, and the metrics that investors are looking for um, to invest and to find that market clearing price, I'm calling it, but really just like the valuation of that round. Um, they're going to look really different than a company raising a series B or a series C that has five or 10 or more million dollars of revenue from customers that have been, you know, customers for multiple years. So now you have the ability to do a cohort analysis and understand the churn of customers and the ability to upsell. Um, and so you can get into all the kind of metrics. Um, it, it also depends on business model. So are we talking about right. selling? Your software? Are we talking about tech-enabled services? Are we talking about a marketplace where you can analyze a take rate and the ability to like uphold that take rate over time? Or is there going to be price compression as, you know, kind of uh, marketplace grows and those players can potentially transact off the marketplace if the, the clearing take rate is too high? Um, these are all kind of you know, would be my follow-up questions. Um, but I'd say generally investors are always, in, in early and mid-stage um, venture capital investors are always looking for three things or at least three buckets of things. The first is a really strong team. And in, in this environment, that's arguably even more important because you want to be mm -hmm. backing folks that are really great fiduciaries of capital meaning they're going to be really prudent with their spend. They're going to be really smart in hiring um, and controlling that burn rate and achieving, making sure that they can do more with less, like what we were talking about up top. Mm -hmm. um, and that they have the domain expertise. Do they have, if they're claiming they're an AI company, do they actually have, you know, AI engineering talent? Are they 
able to produce the products that they're, you know, nice looking pitch decks mm-hmm. claim they can. Um, yeah. Two is traction. And so all of, you know, being able to actually convert um, customers to, to real dollars. And so it's nice to be able to throw a bunch of like pilot logos into a deck, but are those people paying you? How much are they paying you? Are they paying you more over time? Um, Or is that like a one-off little just like test case, which is more common now in, again, in this environment to convert a pilot customer to like a a a full customer. Um, And then I would say three, of course, the technology. Is this a differentiated product? Is it solving a real problem? Again, even more important in a, a macro environment like this because customers are only going to spend money on things that are solving real real problems and helping their bottom line, which in the case of prop tech and the real estate industry is most often, you know, is it improving NOI at the end of the day, either yeah. today or over time? And that's where this Twitter thing. Twitter thread comes in, Joe, which we'll put in the show notes. I think this is super insightful because Gene, you just brought the perspective of what does a startup need to prove to investors, but on the other side, they also have, what do we need to prove to building owners, which is where this, and and the expectations on both sides of them are ratcheting up right now. It seems like because of the macro environment in the real estate industry. So Joe, can you talk about this, this kind of yeah thread and kind of what it goes into in terms of these expectations yeah this is uh it's it's from and we'll we'll share it uh matthew Goddesdiener, um uh, and i'll just read one of the i think it's the first or one of the, the tweets PropTech startups that charge per unit recurring SaaS fees and promise either an amorphous process efficiency improvement or worse data-driven operating insights are going to have an incredibly hard time generating new business in 2023 so again speculative yeah and the whole thing is good um, Data-driven really operating insights. That's like every smart building startups website ever. Yeah. So I think what it gets to me is you really need to have a solid value proposition and you need to be able to demonstrate your value prop, not just generally speaking, this is what we can do for you, but more specifically, like these are examples of buildings. It's not just one. It's not just three. It's many buildings across many different clients. This is what we're able to do. And this is how we quantify it. And it, even I think, especially in this environment, Gene, you might have some feedback walking through that with your potential customer before you actually have won the business to say, you know, you know this is this is this is our value prop. This is how it applies to you. Um, historically, the last thing I'll note on here, you had a lot of companies in smart buildings say, oh, we can save you energy. And on one hand, that's true. And a lot of them did save energy, but it also makes everyone sound pretty similar, right? Oh, you're just a company that helps me save energy. And a lot of the other savings or value from the software was a little harder to put your finger on. And maybe for good reason. I mean, you meter your energy, so you got a bill every month. In terms of like staff time, you don't really have like a meter that tells you, oh, this is how many hours my facilities team actually worked. Uh, and, and what were they doing? I mean, they're, they're working, but were they spending their time finding data to do something? Or were they actually like mm-hmm. fixing something or identifying a problem? It's just, it's a lot harder. So I understand why everyone leaned on the energy piece, but you could argue that might not be enough one because a lot of companies can help you save some energy. Uh, and, and I think dovetailing it to this one, it's just, there's more skepticism out there. And maybe part of it is just, we've had prop tech solutions now for a number of years, you know, show me, show me the the value, you know, not don't just tell me, Oh, most likely you can save money. So. 
And I'll add one important thing, I think, to that, which I really agree with all that, Joe. But from the owner's perspective, there's also a lot more understanding and nuanced thinking on the owner's side of, okay, you help me save energy. Five years ago, I don't think we fully understood what it would take. And we are now Mm -hmm. at least on, and not that we've solved it all whatsoever, but we're on that journey and we've mapped out that journey and we've gotten you know, key constituents across within a real estate organization on that journey, tied it to their own, you know, day jobs in a much more robust way than two or three or five years ago. So, you know, for a new tech company or a startup to approach a real estate firm and just say, we're going to help you save energy, the questions back from a potential user of that solution are going to be much more pointed and specific. And yeah. I mean, that's a really great thing for the industry and also for decarbonization overall. And, uh, and, and we're going to help you save in that direction. The, the energy piece, the point that Joe is trying to make too, is that that value prop is the least fluffy. The other ones out there, we're going to you know improve your operating efficiency. All those things are even more fluffy or, or less tangible. And yeah. this is the piece that we, I feel like we, in our course, Nexus Foundations, we, and, and Gene, I think you've been in the course. I think we we trigger people a little bit with the amount of work that we tell them they need to do here. And, and I think it's for good reason. Like I stand behind telling people how much work this is, which is what are all the costs to your technology product when I buy it? It's not just a SaaS fee. What are all of the costs that I yeah. need to budget for and plan for? Total cost are, of ownership. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, we have a slide and I think there's like nine different light items on this slide. So it's probably more than a lot of people are thinking about when they claim what their ROI is. The other piece of ROI, right, is the benefits. So what are all the ways in which you're helping me do my business thing, whatever real estate organization this is, right? And I don't think a lot of startups goes through enough work to really map those costs and benefits to the financial models of the real estate organizations. And it's yeah. a, it's a lot of work and it's hard work to get there, but it, especially in a time like this, it has to be done. Agreed. Totally agree. Yeah. The other one I was going to add, as you were speaking, James, the, the energy piece, you, we all probably remember, I think it was JLL that did the 33300 and the whole kind of framework there was you spend three bucks a square foot a year on energy, you spend 30 bucks a square foot on your property and you spend 300 bucks on your people. Uh, so there is a lot of opportunity to deliver value propositions beyond energy, especially in smart buildings. I think the firms that are able to say, hey, we actually can very confidently show you examples of us doing that. You know, that can either be uh, your, 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 your staff are just much more productive using our solution. And here's how I think they'll, they're now in a position to, to maybe be even more successful because that's more what people are going to be buyers are going to be looking for. Right. I, mm-hmm. I, I'm more cognizant of spend. I'm trying to be a little bit more conscientious of what I'm spending my money on. I'm having maybe more trouble getting things approved. So I, you know, instead of picking good enough technology, you're looking for the technology that's, you know, at the cream of the crop. Um, so this is a funny, I think I don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but this is actually a funny topic to talk about. So the 330 300 rule is the exact example where I feel like startups kind of piggyback on top of that rule of thumb and mm-hmm. then they'll say okay you're spending 300 on people or you're spending 30 on space 
and we're going to help you save 5% of that or whatever. And that directly leads into their ROI calculation, but they haven't sat right. here and asked, okay, who's spending yeah. that 30 cents or who's spending that $3 a square foot? Um, right. is it the tenant or the landlord? And is, and is who's spending, uh, the 300, is that the tenant organization or the landlord and, and how is the landlord thinking about this building or is it a transactional building where they're going right. to sell it in a couple of years that we aren't going through enough work to figure out exactly how yeah, and who is what I'm saying. Totally. Or is it the yeah, owner agreed. of the agreed. property? Because that's not always the same thing or yeah. it's more often not. And every building for the most part is different. Um, and so we, as technology vendors, I'm saying the Royal, we, we have to go through that work to figure that out. Right. Agreed. All right. Yeah, yeah. No, great. Good points. Yep. So last thing before we get to like what's happened in M and a in the last quarter is just broadly thinking about this being our first podcast of 2023. What are, what are your guys' thoughts on uh, predictions? Maybe Joe, you had some good stuff in your latest newsletter. Do you want to start? Yeah. Yeah, I, I won't go into all the detail in the interest of time. But yeah, in my most recent newsletter, which came out a couple of weeks back, early February, uh, I just had my own couple predictions for the for the new year. And, and I, I'll just maybe run through the four that I included. And, and you could argue, I think this will be an interesting year in that we have a little bit of stress on the market side. We have a need for prop tech. We have a need for smart building technology. We have interest in climate technology more so than we have historically. But you also have just potential stress within real estate assets. And there's been some news uh, of, of just, you know, owners of properties defaulting on those properties or planning to default on those properties. So, yeah, still a lot of data about offices are not empty, but they're not as full as they once were. So there's a lot of these pieces all coming together. I think if we zoom more closely to just what does it mean for smart buildings, in, in no particular order, the, the predictions that I had, one, I, I do think we're going to have some rationalization in this marketplace more than we have right now. And there was a graphic I shared where if you map out types of solution, uh, you map out use cases, you know, do you help me with ESG reporting? Do you help me with IAQ monitoring? I mean, you could argue there's dozens, if not more use cases. Right now, there, there's very much a lot of overlap between vendors that do some of these. And while I think that will continue, it's not going to be the most logical organized market by the end of this year. I do think that we're going to have more rationalization there. Um, it'll, it'll be a little bit clearer. We're moving in that direction. That's partially because of M&A activity that I expect to continue to happen. But I also just think owners and operators of properties will probably be a little bit more aware of what are the solutions I need? How do I want them to come together? What do I want to integrate? What can be separate? So I think that, that we're going to continue seeing that. And I had a couple specific uh, predictions in the newsletter on just categories and, and mm -hmm. what I think will happen in, in the year. And you mean by rationalization, you mean here are the boundaries between these different categories, these companies yeah. fit in these categories, like those types of. Exactly. I, I think rules. that, and I've talked to folks that are deploying, you know, individuals at properties, at, at corporates or co commercial real estate firms that say, you know, like there's like 20 companies and they all overlap in certain ways, but not in other ways. And it's really confusing. And I think once you know this market, that's a little bit easier to get your head around. But if you're just coming into the market, as a buyer, it's very confusing. And I think I, I'm seeing signs, definitely acquisitions that have already happened that we've talked about on this, this podcast, but also just, I think, some recognition that, that certain things are kind of naturally going to fit together. Um, also, I think some categories of technology might remain or become, it, it may be more 
fair to say that's a bit of a niche. Certain buildings will want that, but it's not something that every building is going to want. You know, access control. Every large building has an access control system. They all have a building automation system. Generally, if they're big enough, um, there are other categories of technology where you might argue it might be more more obvious throughout this year. That's going to be interesting in certain buildings, but not in a lot of other buildings. And mm. so all of those things will contribute to the fact that it, it'll be a little bit more, I use the term rationalization, but maybe organization or, or more, uh, it'll be easier to wrap your head around how all these pieces fit together. Got it. And were those, were those all the predictions? I can't remember if there are more. No, no. I, I mean, I, I kind of touched on a few of them there. I think there's going to be an increasing pace of merger and acquisition activity as we discuss here. I think the yeah. one point I was going to add to that, because a lot of people, if, if, you know, I, I, I've read a lot of the other predictions. I don't know that things will move as quickly as we think, though there could be some catalyst that you, know, you see accelerating M&A activity. And so while I don't know that by the end of 2023, there will have been this huge amount of M&A, it may extend a few more years. You still have in smart building tech world, you know, of the companies that are, are smart building firms, you still have a lot of companies that I think are probably not going to raise a lot more money. They're not growing a lot, but they're also not, they, they may be able to get to profitability or you know, profitability enough that they can keep the lights on. And that might lead them to say, eh, we don't need to sell or we want to sell at our price. So I think it just extends the clock. Um, the fragmentation we have is a problem for buyers, but it also means if you've been able to securely close a couple of key accounts, that may be enough to keep keep in business. Um, exactly what happens with those, it, it remains to be seen, but it may not lead to, we can't raise around, we just have to go sell our business. There may be the, a third approach. Can we just you know, cut our burn, reduce our burn, and, and kind of live to see another day? Um, and, and I think I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. There were a couple other predictions, but... Um, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll think, put a link that, to that the newsletter, yeah, yeah. as we usually do in the show notes. Uh, Gene, you got any, uh, I think you've got a hot take rather than a prediction. I've got one hot take that I've been, uh, thinking about recently and might cause me to lose a couple of friends after I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> but I, I kind of think the ESG fund is this year's SPAC. It's the new SPAC. Um, and what do I mean by that? Uh, I think suddenly I'm hearing or seeing announcements formally that, Everyone is raising one, has raised one, or thinking about launching one. Um, and there's some real opportunity, I think, obviously, especially with uh, respect to decarbonization and the built world. So there's good reason to be thinking about these themes. Um, and there's also, you know, it's one of the areas that I think is still possible to raise, or at least less friction to raise LP limited partner capital. So raise a new fund strategy dedicated to something related to ESG. Lots of limited partners do want exposure to that. That being said, kind of like SPACs, you know, 18 to 24 months ago, I see already a mismatch of supply and demand here. I think there's mm -hmm. way more dollars being raised or allocated to companies um, in the quote unquote, with quote unquote ESG themes, then there are great investment opportunities. So I wouldn't be totally surprised if in 12 or so months from now, or, you know, it'll probably take a little bit longer to see all these funds, if, if these funds actually do formally launch and make investments. But I, I could see, you know, the ESG fund going somewhat of the way of the SPAC 
in that there's just too much supply and not enough quality demand. Um, and I just don't see, you know, very few of these capital allocators raising these strategies all of a sudden have this deep expertise in climate tech or decarbonization or other ESG, you know, adjacent markets. Um, and so I wonder if they really have a unique view or they're just riding the wave when there's, you know, many fewer waves to be ridden this year than there was in previous years. Totally. Does this hot take um, apply to VC funds? Does it apply to, because there's like funds that are getting raised around um, acquiring assets that are some sort of ESG rated, right? But then there's also funds that are like, we're going to go out and deploy capital into actual projects that decarbonize, like those types of funds. Is this all three? No, I'm really talking about VC funds. Like I think Mm. the VC game is so, you know, it's so much about very few bets on a very high volume at the top of the funnel. And when Mm -hmm. you apply further parameters, like every prop tech fund raising an ESG fund, you're just narrowing the, 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 the funnel that you can really look at. And I think it's going to be really hard Mm -hmm. to achieve not many venture scale outcomes. That being said, I think there are more opportunities outside of traditional, you know, software like venture capital dollars um, with a smart view on, you know, either like an opco propco model or the appropriate kind, finding the appropriate kind of capital associated with the right kind of return, like risk return profile um, to invest in things that aren't just like purely SaaS with an ESG theme, um, but instead decarbonizing real assets. There's there's real, I'm not as much of an expert in that area, so I can't, I'm not, I'm going to hold back from commenting on what the supply and demand of capital is there. I'm much more confident saying there's a disequilibrium in the venture market um, yeah. on decarbonization and like ESG themes. But I do. I think there's probably more of an interesting, more interesting um, ways to deploy capital when you're not looking at like pure venture capital um, in the like decarbonization slash ES. And I hate like interchangeably using the the term yeah. ESG and decarbonization. It, it's I kind of selling you. I'm like, sorry. No, no, it, it's kind of where where we are as a market right now. All right, let's cut off the macro discussion, Joe, unless you have anything else to say there. No, I was one of the things Gene and I were, were mentioning, I think just offhand a couple of weeks ago, was that, you know, that in, in some ways, investors might be looking at climate tech ESG as having a really big TAM. So if you're in prop tech today, you're investing, you're putting capital work in prop tech, you could make the case, well, the climate tech opportunity is even bigger, and that's a way to go raise more money. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, speculative, but but I think that's also maybe driving the the uh, posture towards or the trajectory towards climate tech and ESG. To to build NG's point, totally. All right, let's get into M and A. So, Joe, let's start. You got uh, basically all you know your list that we'll put in the show notes as well. It's got a list of all the deals that have happened. Do you just want to kind of run through a summary? Yeah, I'll just I'll just read the ones since we had our last podcast. And again, this is just on my website; it's free for anyone to view. Um, so, Energy Well acquired Think Energy, 
in kind of the retail electricity provider space for residential. So maybe not as much smart buildings, but still interesting. Uh, Insight, which is a uh, smart building platform, kind of energy management, operational management. They bought a company called Sol Vista, which is in hospitality energy management. So kind of got them more into hospitality hotels specifically. Uh, Blackstone acquired a share of Emerson's climate solutions business. Uh, that is primarily the components that go into HVAC. So like Copeland compressors are probably the number one thing people mm-hmm. know of when they think of Emerson. And if you look in a lot of... Uh, uh, if you look in a lot of HVAC systems, you'll actually see like a blue compressor, and that is usually a Copeland compressor. So that that was um, the majority share has been bought by Blackstone. Uh, Infogrid acquired Aquacore. Infogrid, I tend to think of them as a kind of a smart building platform or a, a, a single pane of glass solution. They're based in uh, Europe, but they operate you know here too. And the Aquacore gave them, uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about this, but it gave them more of an energy management platform that's kind of a specific use case within generally the, the the scope of what they do um nrg energy big re um deregulated energy supplier so if you live in a state where you can select your energy supplier texas great example illinois another example they bought vivid smart home kind of interesting i don't know that we'll talk about this one but the utility uh, and energy suppliers there's been a lot of MA over the past couple of years where they've been trying to i think make their products stickier right because at the end of the day if you're selling uh, energy that is a commodity by definition, and a lot of the the churn in those deregulated markets is, is quite high. Um, mm-hmm. So, so my sense is they're trying to uh, get more stickiness out of their customers. Um, Regents, which is an, an operating unit of Blackstone, that's kind of been built together through a number of different acquisitions. They bought Lord Green Solutions, which was very focused on sustainability data management for commercial real estate firms. Um, more consulting, from what I had seen, than than software, but kind of fits nicely with what they've done. Um, Daikin, big, actually the biggest HVAC company, they bought Venstar. Venstar did a few things, but primarily thermostats and kind of middle tier building or middle size building climate control. They did have a, a cloud-based solution. Um, Daikin's been pretty acquisitive, big acquisitions over the past couple of years. Um, so we'll talk about that one, I believe. Um, S&P Global, um, you know, S&P, uh, they bought a company called uh, Shades of Grey, which was... Uh, built out of a, a European organization called Cicero, um, very much kind of in the sustainability data category. Um, sealed, which is a, they retrofit homes, they, they retrofit and they provide sealed because they improve ventilation or uh, insulation, sorry, insulation. They bought a, a small tech platform called Infosense. Uh, Lesson bought SMS Assist. That's very much kind of a, a CMMS type product that has a, a workplace component to or marketplace component to it as well. So I have stores, I have facilities, I'm looking for service providers, anything from trash removal, snow removal, uh, leaf, you know, clearing leaves, landscaping. Um, that's what SMS assist could provide. Um, back very kind of specific, but I like to cover these cause they're interesting. Um, Rogers building solutions bought a HVAC controls contractor, Sluss and Paget. Again, there's a lot of those roll-ups happening. Mm-hmm. A lot of just independent uh, firms. We don't really get into that so much on this podcast, but it's actually pretty interesting. Um, and then last one to share thus far, Convene acquired in, in Europe ETC Venture or ETC Venues, um, which is another uh, event space. So the first thing, like when I hear that list, I'm like, that's a lot considering I, I felt like the last quarter was pretty quiet, right? Uh, the last 
part of yeah. 2022 at least. I it seems I like there's actually run, a lot there. Yeah, I sometimes run the numbers on quarter to quarter. Has there been more M and A? Has there been less? Or year to year? Has there been more or less? I think if you look from like 2017, 2018, 2019 to now, there's definitely been more activity, more M and A activity. I'm less focused personally on quarter to quarter because there are cases where you can delay when you announce a deal. I also just think going into November, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all the holidays in December, it's probably likely that some firms would say, hey, let's announce this at the beginning of the the year. That list that I went through is from end of last year through the first month, month and a half of this year. Yeah, uh, and I think even this month there have been, you know, by the time this published is published, there's probably even more that we we could have added. Um, but despite the ones that you but, did say, yeah. there's a lot from the uh, sort of residential energy, but there there isn't like yeah. this. We're not seeing this like major consolidation in smart buildings or prop tech, really, at least in right. that list. Yeah. And, right. and I would also argue that there's not a, a thesis you can point to and say, these are the five firms that are all putting this thesis to work. I would say that, yeah, on the independent integrators, service providers, there's just been for years, private equity firms buying those up, rolling them together. So yeah. that, I guess you could say, is a thesis that's pretty solid. Uh, I think the one that I'm starting to see maybe a little bit is just within the sustainability data management category. There are companies that have a position there that are buying up other other yeah. uh, assets. I think we're going to talk about that a little bit. We've talked about that on podcasts before. But, but totally. other than that, you're right. It, it's not like everyone's trying to build prototypical prop tech building or business that looks like X, and they're all kind of taking their own way to get there. Uh, maybe yeah. we see that. Or, or may, maybe we I, don't. I have a question for you guys, um, or at least an observation. Curious if it resonates with either or both of you. Um, I've been surprised to see what I'll call more mergers than acquisitions by large incumbents announced recently. It feels like, I mean, even if they're technically an acquisition of like a startup buying a smaller startup, Mm -hmm. I've been, or it feels like I'm seeing more announcements of that kind of like combination strategy of startups versus the traditional like strategic sale to a large incumbent. Like Um, Intogrid and Opcore, is that what you're saying? Like yeah, exactly. Example. Like an example like that versus, um, you know, a JCI or a Siemens being more acquisitive. Yeah. Does that resonate or is that just, you I, know? Yeah, I, I think it actually is happening. I, I, yeah, I hadn't thought of it exactly that way. I, 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 my take from, from your point, Gene, is one, there's just so many startups out there. When you really start digging into this market, you realize there's so many companies and you could argue some of them aren't in terms of product that much different than something that you might already have at a JCI, at a Siemens, at any of these larger companies. So they might look at some of these companies and say, you know, we already do that to some degree. Maybe our go-to market is a little bit different. Uh, Yes, they've built a business, but that doesn't really add from a product point of view a lot. Whereas two or three small startups or two might say, you know, if we come together, that might help us extend our runway. That might help us be a little bit more compelling to a buyer Maybe we have some shared customers that already like both of us. And so, you know, we're going to do right by them and maybe be more entrenched in those businesses. Um, and how much is the, are the fundraising cycles a part of this too? I wonder, because like, if we look at that yeah. example, Ahokor had raised money several years ago and they're probably in a position where they needed to raise while the market is kind of on a downturn. Infogrid mm-hmm. had just raised a lot of money, right? 
So there's probably like some synergies yeah. there just with the way that the market turned out for both of them. But I, 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 you know, I don't know if I have a real piece of insight for you there, Gene. Um, I, I do know that if you look at Joe's list, you know, back to the list on his website, Siemens has been extremely acquisitive. JCI has been over the years, just maybe not in this quarter. His name was Schneider, right? Um, yeah. Honeywell, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. That's fair. I think it, we're not going to have like statistically significant data for another 12 months because these deals take so long to actually takes, yeah. handle. Like yeah. the lead time is probably six to 12 months at least. Um, okay, and then there's a delay announcement that you guys, you know, potential. Yeah. Let's dive into a few of these. Um, I'll kind of lead us into ones I think are the most interesting. Let's start with Daikin. Joe, for those people that don't know Daikin, you said largest HVAC. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, largest HVAC yeah, so OEM. Back, yeah. Background on Daikin. Daikin uh, based headquartered in Japan. They have grown and kind of their number, their, their first business was, was in VRF. They call it VRV, variable, variable refrigerant flow, but VRV, I think it's variable refrigerant volume, but um, basically heat pump type, type HVAC technology, very popular in Japan, spreading very popular in other parts of Asia, more popular in Europe, now becoming more popular in America. They have, um, they, they're maybe not as much of a household name in the US, but they own Goodman. Goodman is more residential, but if you drive around just a suburban neighborhood and you're actually, if you're a dork about it like me and you're looking at people's HVAC units and um, uh, you'll see like a lot of them are Goodman because it's, it's very much reliable. They're all built in America um, and, you know, good value is kind of how I think of Goodman. They bought a couple years back. They bought McQuay. McQuay was a big chiller. I mean, not as big as Train, not as big as JCI, York, but they were a chiller business. Now they call that the Daikin applied business. So Daikin is a significant player they did not rebrand goodman so goodman is still goodman so maybe people you know who, who are listening just don't realize that's actually part of daikin um but but daikin in terms of just pure play hvac company very strong uh, not as strong on the control side uh you know vrf systems don't tend to have as mo as robust controls as, as you would if you have you know a chiller and air handlers and whatnot um but but that's daikin in a nutshell um they're they're a very big player um, and, and not just in Japan, that's just, you know, where they're headquartered and where they were founded. Yeah. yeah. And then this acquisition, so they acquired Benstar, which is a controls company, yeah. smaller buildings, sort of controls. We'll talk about sort of my take in a second, but this is similar to a bunch of other acquisitions on your list. Do you want to kind of run through those? Yeah. Um, you know, over time, all of the big OEMs, not all, many of the big OEMs have bought a business to get into the smaller yeah. building or mid-sized building control space. So Honeywell back, I think 15 plus years ago now, bought Novar. There were a couple different businesses with Novar, uh, but Novar had, if, if you go into a big box store, sometimes you'll just look at the thermostats and they're actually Novar thermostats if, if they're old. Siemens bought site controls, same type of, of business. Um, they recently bought WattSense. In, the, in between there, they bought J2 Innovations. Um, but those were all... Uh, companies that were focused on the buildings that wouldn't buy a full-blown building automation system, a, a big box, you know, you go into a Best Buy, they're probably not going to buy a building automation system. They have rooftops, they have thermostats, but they might want some supervisory control. They might want some visibility. They might want to be able to look outside of that building. How are, how are things running in that building? Um, JCI has launched something called Verisys. Uh, that is their kind of mid-building or multi-site type building control system. 
Um, and then you have larger firms, like Gridpoint has raised, raised maybe a year ago, a big round. So that's an interesting category. And Venstar was playing in that space as well. They have a thermostat product, uh, actual physical thermostats. They, they work well in that middle-sized building. Uh, they have a, a cloud-based kind of reporting and, and visibility solution. So they fit into that same category. Um, and that allows Daikin to, to play in that space where a lot of their peers over the years have moved into. Yeah, totally. I, I think I have two thoughts here, and I think it speaks to a couple of different things. One is the control system allows, you know, Daikin's primary customer, which is system integrators and HVAC contractors, right? It allows yeah. those companies to perform service remotely. It allows those companies to, you know, have service contracts and, you know, stick with the same line of products that they might buy from Daikin usually, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, the other piece of this is I saw someone on LinkedIn the other day that said, um, it was actually a comment on one of my posts, but it was from someone like a VC from outside the industry. And he said something along the lines of like, I'm not worried about decarbonizing buildings because we're just going to electrify the grid. And I think that is a, like a, an ill-informed mm -hmm. take because if we were to take every, you know, I think this shows kind of what Daikin's thinking, which is it's not just about selling heat pumps everywhere to decarbonize. It's also about, hey, we also need control systems to make those heat pumps do stuff better, right? Mm -hmm. um, and even if we had heat pumps everywhere, we would still waste energy without the controls that go along with them, right? It's not just about right. that piece of decarbonization. Right. Um, and we have a whole white paper on this, you know, the importance of controls in small buildings where there currently aren't any. But Joe, what, what do you think? Is that kind of how you're thinking about it as well? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, the, the added layer to that, uh, even with heat pumps, even with electrification, demand flexibility, which is something we exactly. don't talk about a lot. That's a really big issue, right? Being able to use energy at the right times, being able to uh, pull, pull back on or uh, roll back what you're using at certain times. Um, you really need controls to do that. Um, and that becomes increasingly important as you have more variability in terms of generation of energy on the grid. Yeah. So it's not just demand response. It's also controlling ventilation and making sure the heat pump's not, right. you know, conditioning a space that it's unoccupied and those types of things. Exactly. Exactly. So super interesting. Yeah. I, I hope we see in that category of acquisitions, I hope we see more investment and make continuing to make controls for small buildings simpler and easier to use kind of all the things yeah. we sort of outlined in our, our white paper. Okay, cool. That one's interesting. Let's go to the Blackstone one, Joe. So I'm not sure that I, I see why this is interesting to you. So I want to kind of go into it a little bit. So you well, talked about Legions, which is a Blackstone company acquiring yeah. green. Why, why is this cool? Yeah, no. Uh, well, so, so one, I think, you know, Blackstone, very sophisticated investor. They've made a number of acquisitions. They've kind of brought them all together into this brand they now call Legions. Uh, their website's actually pretty useful because it just lists, these are all of our businesses and it, it summarizes them and explains them. One of the businesses they had bought was a, a company called Retech Advisors. And I, I think that was a couple of years back, um, maybe even before they they called this grouping of businesses Legions. Um, but it's it's very much playing in the same space as Lord Green in the sustainability data management and reporting space. So when we talk about climate tech earlier, uh, when you own a lot of real estate, one of the from it from a sustainability point of view, one of the big roles you have is reporting out to 
uh, or, or adhering to the various standards, um, Gresby, SAS, SASB, uh, Energy Star. There, there, I mean, there's a list of probably 15 to 20. So you're, you're doing that. And a lot of that is expectations from the people who have invested in your funds. So the investors of your funds say, well, we want to know like what, you know, we, we want all these details. So you have solutions that do that, um, which can include a software solution to collect the data, to analyze the data, software to help you report. But there's usually in there a consulting component to help you know, pull yeah. together not just the quantitative metrics, but also the qualitative side of, you know, you, you, you I think in Gres- Gresby specifically, you have kind of a narrative around this is our strategy. These are our goals. This is what we have done thus far. Um, so y- you can have that help. And then there's also things like uh, data validation, da- data completeness, that having just a software solution may help you do some of that, but they may be useful to have a human element. Um, I think what's specifically interesting about Blackstone is that the businesses they have acquired kind of go across the board, both from Retech and uh, and Lord Green with consulting to actually report every year uh, various sustainability standards. But they bought a company called Therma. Therma was actually a, a contracting business that would actually go in and retrofit buildings or can, I shouldn't say did, they, they still do retrofit buildings. So and, and there's other businesses in there that, that they own that not just help with data management and reporting, but actually what I would call kind of cl- or say close the loop on. We can actually help you improve your buildings. Now, that obviously is a huge market. A lot of it is very localized. Um, so I don't know that Blackstone is going to be knocking on every door across the country anytime soon saying, hey, we can do everything end to end. But of the pieces they've acquired, they do that. Lord Green looked a lot like Retech Advisors. Um, I had been I, I had heard. You know, they're, they're fairly similar, fairly competitive. There's a few companies out there that kind of have that role of if you're a large commercial real estate firm, a large corporation, and you just need help figuring out sustainability reporting, there's kind of a, a short list of companies you'd go to. And these were, were typically two of them that would be on that list. Um, so I don't know exactly what, what, what's being thought other than this might just give you more scale. There might be more consulting bandwidth horsepower there that, 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 that you can use. But I think it's interesting because one, you're seeing sustainability data management, sustainability as a strategy or as a strategic imperative, driving a lot of investment on the part of real estate companies. And then here's a, a big business that's buying up smaller businesses that also mm-hmm. has more of an end-to-end solution, I would say, than others. Got it. Gene, you got any you got any thoughts on this this one? Oh man. Um that this was a lot of learning in real time for me, honestly. Um, but it is interesting to see, I mean, this is much more of like a private equity strategy. So it's interesting to see the parallels or at least draw the the comparison to, you know, startups and in the venture market trying to become mm-hmm. or own more of, uh, you know, a, a journey, a user journey or like a full suite mm-hmm. or a, a platform like solution. This is kind of the private equity equivalent, I, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I kind of did a lot of learning in real time here. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people are saying that that's going to happen to smart buildings, right? That this kind of what you just described, Joe, from this reporting, you know, these yeah. reporting use cases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 well, I think one, private equity, I would not be surprised if they play a bigger role in everything we're, we're talking about today, smart buildings. Um, but, uh, but, but yeah, I, I also think you know, the reporting piece is kind of a nice anchor in some ways. I don't know that Blackstone would say that's the anchor that we have for our entire end-to-end legions business, but it does make a pretty nice anchor. Got it. And and you mentioned that 
in a similar category here, there was another acquisition, which is Grez acquiring asset resolution. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I'll talk about it very briefly. So Grez, I mentioned them. So, so if you are a real estate investor, a REIT basically, so Nuveen would be an example, you're most likely reporting to Gresb every year. It's one of the leading standards, uh, which is kind of validating, verifying performance around. It's, it stands for the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. Um, and there's others that are, are like them. Right now, the process typically works. Either you submit data every year to Gresb, or you work through a consultant, or you work through a software solution, or maybe it's both software plus. So um, there's a whole ecosystem uh, and, and again, Gresm is not the only one uh, standard that people are reporting to, but you could argue they've established themselves as being one of the leading standards for, for again, mostly for commercial real estate firms, maybe not as much for a corporation that just has real estate. Um, asset resolution is kind of an interesting data play. I see them as being maybe data, both about individual assets, whereas Gresm is typically more focused on a portfolio. Um, and there's a bit of a component there where they're they're kind of market facing, right? So if you're investing in real estate businesses or real estate assets, you there, there's the market for that, and you may be using you know sustainability type data. Um, but I, I I see it as just generally being uh, getting deeper into uh, you get, going downstream to some degree where Gresb sits today. Um, I would also say that there's you know some some overlap between what different companies do. So it's kind of also an interesting fragmented space. On one hand, we're seeing acquisitions, but you could also argue that there, there remains this, this fragmentation. Um, but it, but it, it is, again, another kind of sustainability data management driven deal. Okay. Let's move on to InfoGrid. We, we talked about it a little bit, acquiring AquaCore. Um, you want to kind of explain how you see this one, Joe? And I uh, have some thoughts as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think our listeners may be more familiar with AquaCore than with InfoGrid, though maybe they've both not. been on the podcast before. Yeah, so they've both good. been on the podcast, so I guess everyone actually uh, should know both. Um, so InfoGrid based in London, uh, AquaCore is based in the DC area. Um, InfoGrid operates in the US as well. I'm actually not sure if AquaCore operates outside of America, but InfoGrid has kind of established itself as as one of these, as I mentioned earlier, kind of a, a smart building uh, uh, operating system. You could argue data across multiple different use cases, multiple types of data, multiple data streams. Historically, those companies are useful in that you don't have to have 10 different places to find 10 different data streams. You can go to one place. Though in reality, there's still a lot of siloed data in a lot of buildings or across a lot of portfolios. So there's kind of there's a process you have to go through to get everything onto one system if you really want to get onto one system. And I, I, you know, that's more of a multi-year journey than, than we buy a software solution when we all of a sudden everything's in one place. But they, they, they were across the board doing a lot, a lot of different data types, you could say, could be managed in their solution. Um, AquaCore, very focused, you know, starting on energy management that kind of includes to some degree sustainability data management. Um, but they look a lot like a lot of the other interval data. I mean, historically, a lot of the interval data solutions, right? Where we put meters in your buildings, we collect those data. It's 15-minute interval. It tells us all kinds of interesting things about what's happening in your building. Easy to identify a lot of inefficiencies, so on and so forth. If you have all of that information, you can easily convert it into carbon emissions and have a sustainability story as well. So, so these two companies coming together, it definitely gives InfoGrid a lot more depth around energy management. You could argue energy and sustainability management, um, which to our point earlier is where you have a solid 
uh, value proposition, solid ROI, right? Energy and, and, and uh, energy savings. So those two companies coming together, you, you could argue it does make InfoGrid, which based in the UK, more of a player in the US. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, the US is a huge market and, and it's uh, in a lot of ways fairly similar across the country, whereas you could say in Europe, each country is a little bit different. Um, so it, it's easier to, to yeah. scale, I would say, in the US. Yeah. I think one of the interesting things about this acquisition is like you have a company in Pogrid that doesn't currently do, to my knowledge, right? Everything changes, you know, faster than I can uh, yeah. you know, hear about it sometimes. But you have Infogrid who doesn't currently do integration with on-site systems. It's typically, you know, slap a cheap sensor, not cheap, right? Slap a low-cost yeah. sensor into the building yeah. and create data that we didn't have before and then provide some sort of software experience that help someone do their job better, right? Totally needed, but interesting that they're not coming in and saying, we're going to integrate with your automation systems. We're going to integrate with access control. They're sitting out as its own new silo usually, right? Mm -hmm. They make an acquisition of a company that also does that, right? Where we're coming in and putting meters in, we're coming in and, and, you know, they're basically at the energy silo, like you said, um, I'm not trying to offend anyone by saying silo, but just like they do that as a point solution, right? Um, so it's interesting. Now we have the combination of the two, but we still don't have uh, legacy systems integrated into that solution. And I feel like there's a limitation there that is still, you know, you know, it's a new stack, new use cases, new IP, but it still feels like there's a lot that needs to be added to that solution to be comprehensive in the way that we're talking about these roll-ups happening in the industry. Yeah, and, and I think that's for a variety of reasons. One, it's just very difficult at scale to integrate with a lot of the on-premise systems. Um, yep. There are solutions now that kind of solve that specific piece, but it remains tough and it's different in every building. So it, it's not a repeatable process like you would totally. you would want if, if you're deploying your own, your, your own um, software. But, but I also think there may be some hesitancy on the part of a building owner, well, really facility operator, building operator, I might say, you know, I don't really want anything touching my building automation system. I want information and then I'll go to my building automation system and, you know, change schedules, set points, sequences, things like that. Totally. I think that might change a little bit. One, because we just have a shortage of labor. So if you're looking to augment um, individuals with software, one way to do that is to, to kind of take some of the things you're doing as a job and say, can we just automate that piece? So I'm totally. still involved. Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. The other piece of this, and I think you would agree with me, Joe, here, is that in that space that Aquacor was in, which is I'm going to do cool stuff with utility bills and I'm going to do cool stuff with interval meters, that sort of energy management information system space, energy information system. That space is unique in that the software products are not that differentiated in that category. There's a bunch of them, right? And they're Mm -hmm. typically catering to the user persona, that's the energy manager, the very technical engineer, like I used to do, you know, in the first 10 10 years of my career. And it's really difficult because there aren't that many of those folks out there. And a lot of owners don't have those people on staff. And so I I think there's a a difficult, like that category has difficulty jumping over to adjacent user personas. How do I get into the sustainability manager? How do I get into the ESG person, right? At the real estate organization? Well, you're going to have to help them with what their problems are, right? Right. You're not helping the energy manager. You're helping that other person. 
Um, the other direction, right, is the facility managers. It's really difficult to go from I have meter data to I'm helping a facility manager with their job, right? right? And I, I think if I, and I haven't heard, I haven't talked to Logan in a few years from Aquacore, but if I had to like say what the problem is with that business and why they aren't, you know, why aren't they not the ones acquiring InfoGrid? Is it's like it's because that jump to adjacent stakeholders and user engagement is actually a really, really difficult one to make. I think it's a really, really great point. Yeah, I was just gonna, uh, you know, kind of related to that. I think it's easier, and I can't think of an example off the top of my head. So curious if either of you can, but it's it's easier to move um, top down. Mm-hmm. Then it is bottom up. And what I mean by that is like mm-hmm. top down from the actual like largest budgets, which will usually come from owners and then probably operators yeah. and then yeah. probably facility managers and like folks actually like boots on the ground. I think it's easier to start up there, even though, you know, from like a, a portfolio view where you're, you're maybe not actually like have, you, you don't have as much measurable impact. Um, but you're speaking to the people who have the largest purse strings. So I'm ca- do you guys have, you know, off the top of your heads, examples of companies who have successfully gone in that direction versus what I think you're kind of describing in the friction that, um, you know, these folks have potentially run up against is going bottom up is much harder. Totally. Yeah. Well, Joe ha- did in Joe's newsletter, he kind of has a couple graphics that I think speak really well to this, which is like top down is like, you had a Freudian slip there, Gene, which is measurable, right? Measurable has done a good job of starting at the top, I think. I think Aquacore is sitting in the middle, which is like a more technical yeah. user, more uh, metering required to enable what they were building. And then you have like uh, an FDD product or a, a deeper analytical product that it's yeah. all the way on the right, which is like, I'm going to cater to a technician or a facility manager. You have that spectrum here. And you're right. I think measurable is a good example of like starting on that full left side and going, you know, checking off use cases. Um, we said we weren't going to talk about measurable this time, though. Maybe there's another example. Uh, well, I, no, I agree with everything to build on all of that. So, Gene, I think you're right. Um, the budget piece is, I think, critical. Also, just from a strategy point of view, if you go to the top of the organization and say, we want to deploy a solution that can help you solve this big, hairy problem issue, which is sustainability uh, broadly getting to net zero broadly. And that, you know, the form that takes is we need to track these metrics. We need to report out on these metrics. That's something that you can kind of get the, the whole organization to buy in on. If you look at solutions that are more interval data focused, oftentimes you have individual facility teams. Maybe you have separate operating you know, third-party operators across your portfolios who might say, well, you know, we have good experience using this meter this metering, uh, meter reporting technology, interval data technology, we're using that, it works well. And all the metrics you need to do the sustainability reporting, we can we can send them to you. We can you know do that through an API. We can just report, you know, send you a spreadsheet, whatever it is. Um, so I think each of those solutions has kind of carved out a niche, but it's if you're trying to scale across an organization, which all these companies are trying to do, Starting at the, we have this the strategic solution for the entire portfolio for sustainability data management. It's easier to start there and then go down. Um, yeah. Now the other side of it that I think has not really been resolved. When you look at how do we actually get to net zero, like how do we actually hit the twenty thirty five, you know, let's say target, 
a lot of that requires some real detailed data about those individual assets. So you may, you know, at, at, at the portfolio level, say, we know how our buildings are performing. We have all our energy star scores. We see they're getting better. But that doesn't, that just continuing on is kind of incremental improvement where what we probably need is more, uh, you know, more significant improvements. And some of that is going to require much more intimate knowledge of what's happening at individual buildings, connecting to the systems, pulling data out of the systems. Uh, that's, I think, what all these companies are, are seeing. It's going to be a little messy, I think, getting there because yeah. you just have so many different companies. You have a lot of legacy software. You have a lot of newer software that don't necessarily completely integrate. Well, and also a sales motion that hasn't targeted that decision yeah, right. yeah. decision maker or that profile yep. before. And Sorry, I James. It, yeah, it's it's sales motion, but it's also like there's a gap here, and I call it the portfolio site gap, which is like decarbonizing happens in a mechanical room, right? It doesn't happen at the portfolio level, right? So top down only has a certain mm -hmm. amount of power, and you have. I think it's a product thing and a business model and a sales motion, right? Where I have to say, well, what is what do I have to do to get into the facility management processes and operations, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because it's capital upgrades, right? And that might be the facility manager, it might be the property manager, it might be someone's portfolio. We have to integrate decarbonization into the, into the capital upgrades. It's uh, maintenance, right? It's um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. integrating it in with how they mm -hmm. do things, right? So it's it, that gap and it's that, like you're saying, I have to get and spread throughout the organization. And I think the, the companies that are going to win isn't, isn't necessarily top down, but it's somebody who can engage from wherever they started and move from one to the next, right? I like the way of, of that you just frame that up. Yeah. Let's call it. I think this is a good good discussion. Um, we have a bunch of on our list that we intend to get to at some point that I think will be interesting. But let's call it for this quarter. Let's close out with some uh, carve outs. Any um, books, TV shows, podcasts, etc., that have had a, a big impact on you guys lately? I'm a little behind on this one because it's not like a new book, but I just read The Goldfinch by Donna Tart and really enjoyed it. Um, I think that there's a poorly scored Rotten Tomatoes movie also of that story, but the book was fantastic. <laughs> I can't okay. vouch for the movie, though. And this is fiction? It is fiction. You know, six, nice. or last summer I discovered, I used to only read like, um, business or like nonfiction books because I'm a dork. Um, I discovered that I like reading stories. So that, yeah, nice. one of my recent fiction reads. <laughs> uh, on that note, I was at, I was at our library this week. I was just kind of browsing. I had to drop some books off that were overdue, but luckily uh, not that overdue. And, and I was just, I usually just go up to where all the, the fiction or nonfiction books are in our library. There's two floors. And I was like looking around for fiction books. So I was like, well, oh, maybe I'll try a fiction book. And I asked the librarian, I said, where are the fiction books? She's like, oh, they're downstairs, sir. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I've never actually checked out a fiction book from our library. So I wouldn't know that. And sure enough, I found them. And, uh, and then she's like, you know, they're, they're, the way they're organized, I'm like, okay, okay, I think I, I, I think I can find, find, figure it out. But it, I mean, the librarian was very nice, but it was just like funny. It was a sign to me, like, I guess I don't get a lot of fiction books. Um, in terms of carve outs, I mean, can I, can I say the World Cup is a carve out? Is that, I guess, James, that, that, it's yeah. a little old, yeah, but totally. it was pretty good, uh, pretty exciting. Forgot that happened. Yeah. 
I know it's like it's such a weird timing, right? Um, but uh, I also I'll say uh, I just I think after the World Cup, I don't know it had anything to do with the World Cup. Finally, started getting into Ted Lasso, which is kind of incredible because I think it's been there out for go. a number of years. I played soccer, love soccer. My mom is English. I have family in England, so like you, that should have been like the first show I would ever watch. Somehow we just never started watching it, and, and I guess just yesterday I think they announced the third season is coming out next month. So. Yeah. I was gonna say, yeah, that's amazing timing because now you're going to be able to yeah. power through all three and it'll just be fantastic. Right. The the one thing not to pick on my wife, but in, in talking through shows where there's English speaking English accents, she once remarked to me that sometimes it's hard for her to understand English accents. And I think certain speakers in England have very deep, like, you know, the, the F's and the THs kind of all melt together. And I, I don't have that issue because i just I, I there's been enough native english speakers but i think for a while it's like i don't know if i want to li- like i can't figure out what they're saying and so um but but anyway we we've, we've gotten through it or started getting through it so so my carve out is related so i heard um Brene brown interview um coach lasso and beard which is uh brendan mm-hmm. uh what's his name hunt it doesn't matter brendan hunt Hunt. And obviously Jason Sudeikis and she is, is such a good interview. Somebody sent it to me and it sent me down this like Brene Brown rabbit hole. And so my carve out is going to be her latest book, Atlas of the Heart, which is really, really good. It's like going deep into the fact that there are actually like 87 different emotions and humans, most humans in our culture have a very small emotional vocabulary. It's like three emotions, happy, sad, and mad. Right. But there are actually 87 of them. And I think we could all do a better job of like actually refining our vocabulary a little bit there. So Alice of the Heart is a really good book. Um, but also that podcast where Brene Brown interviews Ted Lasso and, and Brendan Hunt. So uh, let's let's call it. Thanks so much for the two of you for coming on the show again. We'll do uh, volume five. Hopefully there's more. Hopefully there's more M&A to talk about in a couple months. And if not, we have a list of the ones we haven't gotten to, right? So Yeah, we could always recycle some. So anyway, thank you so much. Thanks, James. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.